This is Port of Harlem Podcast. I'm Wayne Young, your host for this show and also publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine at portofharlem.net. You can visit portofharlem.net and from the menu, click POH Podcast to hear this and past episodes. We are also available on about seven podcast platforms. My guest is Dr. Richard Bale. After delivering a well-received talk at DC's Remember the Pearl 2023 commemoration, we asked him if we could print an excerpt from his book, Stolen. The book tells the story of five free boys kidnapped into slavery and their odyssey home. Both events took place during the reverse Underground Railroad period. We're going to talk with Dr. Bell to get a better understanding of that period and how it may affect Blacks and Americans in general now. Welcome, Dr. Bell. Thanks so much for having me, Wayne. Well, as again, as I said, your talk was really interesting. And what I like most about your talk at the Remember the Pearl commemoration was that you gave life to uh, an undervalued environment. And that's the reverse Underground Railroad environment. Uh, that Solomon Northup from 12 Years a Slave, the Pearl Escapees, and the five young free men in your book who were kidnapped and sold to slavery had to deal with. Can you explain how that reverse underground railroad period started and its effects? Absolutely, yeah. This term, reverse underground railroad, is not a term we hear very often, but we probably need to pay more attention to it because it refers to something that was a big deal um, and an excruciating ordeal for many African-Americans who found themselves ensnared in it in the decades before the Civil War. So um, as demand for uh, enslaved people to work as cotton growers and sugar growers in the Deep South rises and rises and rises after the American uh, Revolution, um, economic incentives are such that any um, person cold-blooded enough to try to kidnap a free Black American from a free soil city like Philadelphia or Boston or New York um, can try to kidnap a free Black person and then transport them into the Deep South and sell them as an enslaved person and pocket the cash that they get from those sales. This is kidnapping, pure and simple. The people they kidnap were not normally um, fugitives from slavery. They were freeborn people who had their papers on them, as free as you and me, Wayne. But that didn't stop these kidnappers from dragging them into slavery, tra transporting them across vast distances, and trying to sell them into slavery for fat profits. So the idea that free people could be dragged into slavery struck me as sort of the opposite of all the opposite of all the enslaved people who seek freedom by going north on the Underground Railroad. So I embraced this term reverse Underground Railroad to refer to all these uh, victims of kidnapping, often from free soil states in the north, like Pennsylvania and New York, who ended up um, often spending the rest of their lives as enslaved workers in Mississippi, uh, Alabama, um, or uh, Louisiana. And I wrote my book, Stolen, to tell that broader story, but also to focus on one particular kidnapping case involving five African-American boys from Philadelphia, the youngest of whom was eight years old, wow. um, who are lured into this 
And all I can uh, say here is that uh, some of them managed to escape, which is a very unusual ending to what would have otherwise been a tragically familiar story. But how did this whole idea start? Start um, Was it just something that started as Blacks came over from, from Africa? Or did it start at a certain period? Was there a certain law, a certain uh, thought process that people started to steal uh, free Black people, kidnap free Black people from the North and take them South? Hey, what a great, what a good question. Yeah, where we look for origins of this can point us in all different directions. So, uh, you know, many of your listeners will be familiar with the transatlantic slave trade, of course, that uh, brought roughly uh, 12 million um, uh, people from Africa to uh, the New World, including North America and the Caribbean, against their will as captive enslaved people. Um, and it is absolutely right to think of the transatlantic slave trade as legalized kidnapping. Uh, how many of those people wanted to go? Zero, as far as I know. Exactly. Um, so we should think of the transatlantic slave trade as an institutionalized form of kidnapping on a, on a massive, massive scale. Of course, it was legal, uh, according to the British government, the Portuguese government, the Spanish government, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, but definitely um, immoral um, and illicit in the eyes of everyone it, um, whose family bonds it destroyed. Right, so Dr. That's Bell, one but, but I guess that's the distinguish between the reverse Underground Railroad and the translated slave trade, that the underground, that the reverse underground railroad is least illegal. That's right. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you, right? So, uh, kidnapping of free black people in Pennsylvania or New York or Massachusetts, that is illegal. Um, even though those states have, you know, powerful histories of racism, kidnapping is illegal in Pennsylvania. And so, kidnappers who grab these five boys that I write about in my book, Stolen, from the streets of Philly are breaking the law. But is there a certain time period that this started? Yeah, so it goes back. Um, we can find uh, examples of kidnapping of free Black people in America, in the United States, as early as the 1780s, so right the era of the American Revolution. But I can also tell you that it increases, becoming pretty widespread as of about 1815 and 1820, which is the era in which um, the transatlantic slave trade into the United States has been legally outlawed. And so people in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, who are looking to buy more captive people are willing to turn to very unorthodox sources to supply their labor needs. And they're willing to buy from kidnappers. Okay, so I think that was the, um, is that when uh, the British outlawed uh, slavery or when the United States outlawed slave, slavery? It's two halves of the same coin, well, actually, I right? Say slavery, so, but they outlawed yeah. the importation of Africans from Africa. Yeah, the importation of Africans to the uh, colonies of the British Empire is outlawed in 1807, and the United States follows suit a year later and makes it illegal to import captive Africans to the United States after January the 1st, 1808. So That's that exactly right. Is, right that the, is that when the kidnapping of free Black people got worse? Absolutely. And for that reason, right, when you cut off 
uh, foreign supply of captive Africans, um, then you, uh, in the United States, you're looking for other supplies of captive Black people who can be put to work in the Deep South. You can buy um, captive people legally from Maryland slave owners or Virginia slave owners or Delaware slave owners who might want to sell you a few people they uh, think they can profit from selling. But you're also willing to buy it from uh, buy captive laborers from uh, people who are obviously kidnappers, but you don't care because you want the labor. I hear you. Uh, that, 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 I, anyway, we'll move on. Uh, this, uh, another term that I also heard that, that refers to this period it's called the second middle passage, uh, which I recently came to embrace. Is it another name? So to you, is that another name for the reverse underground railroad period? This is where things get a little bit complicated here. So I'm going to try and slow down and ex explain this carefully. Um, when the United States government outlaws the further importation of people from Africa into the United States for the purposes of enslaving them. When it outlaws the transatlantic slave trade in 1808, uh, it means that um, planters setting up in the Deep South uh, are increasingly eager for planters elsewhere who already own enslaved people to sell some of theirs to them. And planters in Maryland are quite willing to sell some of their captive workers if they believe they have too many, if they don't need everyone uh, in the same way they needed them 20 years earlier. Um, and so if you are um, an enslaved person in Maryland and your enslaver sells you to a new planter in Mississippi, then you're going to have to travel from Maryland to Mississippi. And these, these are huge transcontinental journeys that more than one million um, African-American enslaved people make from the Chesapeake region, which is where I live, um, down to the Gulf Coast region around Mississippi. These are legal slave sales. Some of them happen by putting a captive person on a ship in Baltimore and sending them you know, down the East Coast and around Florida and landing in New Orleans. But many more um, captive people are made simply to walk to walk one foot after another from Maryland to Mississippi across the country in that's human convoys watched by armed guards. Yes, and that's what's um, what many people refer to as um, the, however they get there, whether it's on foot or on a boat or on a ship or on a railroad, um, that's called the domestic slave trade or the second middle passage. It's a long distance migration of captive black people uh, heading towards a future in chains. And that's in contrast to reverse underground railroad, which, which I think you're saying is something different. That's right. So the reverse underground railroad is the, is the kidnapping version of that, right? So if the domestic slave trade is the legal sale of a legally enslaved person in Maryland to a new buyer in Mississippi, no one's breaking the law there. But the, but the reverse Underground Railroad is adding to that by kidnapping free Black people and then transporting them over the same distances with similar modes of transport and selling them for the same purpose down at the other end. So the reverse Underground Railroad is the kidnapping version of the domestic slave trade. Got you. Thanks so much for the clarification. But by 1825, slavery was dead or dying in the North. 
what were some of the factors to cause it to die in the North and say not in the South? Yeah, what a good question. So um, it's absolutely right. So we often forget that on the 4th of July, 1776, slavery was legal in each of the 13 rebel colonies that would become the United States. There was slavery not just in South Carolina and Virginia, as we all know, but there was also slavery in Pennsylvania, in, in New, New York. York, in New Jersey, <laughs> in Massachusetts, you name it, there was slavery there. Now, it was never of the same scale as plantation slavery in Virginia or South Carolina, because the soil and the climate of New Hampshire means that you can't grow sugar or indigo or rice or tobacco in New Hampshire. So when we think about slavery in the North in the colonial period, we're not usually thinking about plantation agriculture. We're normally thinking about um, extra pairs of hands on small farms, or more likely, we're thinking about um, Black people being forced to work as domestic slaves or um, dock workers who don't get paid um, uh, or construction workers or cartmen or sailors who don't get paid. So in the North, slavery looks different and it's never as big as it is in the South, but it's there nevertheless. So that's the context. And then the American Revolution comes along and a few things happen. One is that British commanders uh, start offering freedom to any uh, enslaved people um, whose masters are patriots who might be willing to come join the British army. You know, abandon your master, come and fight for us, we'll free you after the war. That's one way that slavery gets sort of eroded during the Revolutionary War. Um, there's also the language of the revolution, right? The language of the revolution has a lot to do with natural rights, right? All men are created equal. Life, liberty, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And so there are some, you know, white lawmakers afterwards who say, well, didn't we just fight a war for liberty? And yet aren't we holding people in bondage and depriving them of their liberty? That's a contradiction we should resolve. Maybe we should abolish slavery in our state. Those ideas only gain traction, Wayne, in the states where slavery is pretty small, where slavery is not the dominant economic driver. So you can get anti-slavery legislation through in the northern states, but not in the southern states where slavery is too important to the economy. But I guess so the key word, word you said is that it was too important for the South and not as important in the North, and that's why they could convince people that, to let it go. That's right. Very few white people go bankrupt in the North when slavery dies. If they had, it wouldn't have happened. Gotcha. That makes sense. But there's stories we've done in the past, like on Richard Richard Pierpoint was one um, American-born Black who went to Canada because it was offered freedom. I think that was during the American-British War of 1812 or something like that. So Yeah, that happened a lot, right? People, Black people seeking freedom by leaving the United States is one of the big themes of 19th century American history. Right. But I always think, when I think about, when I, I listen to you talk, and I think about all these different other stories we've done on individual people, and you can see how they fit into your story, like Frederick Douglass being on the docks. I think he was enslaved. He was an enslaved person at the time he worked on the docks in Baltimore, but there were other free Blacks there working with him. And That's a, that's a great point, Wayne. So I just want so to Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, I want you to go a little bit talk more about his situation and how it fits into the bigger story you already gave for 
Absolutely. Yeah, Douglas is a fascinating figure. I'm always happy and honored to talk about Frederick Douglass. I live in Maryland, so I'm very proud of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman for obvious uh, reasons. Uh, so Douglas is a good uh, observer of everything we've talked about before. Um, Douglas grew up in slavery in uh, Talbot County on the Eastern Shore, and he watched with horror as one by one, 15 members of his family were sold elsewhere on the domestic slave trade, right? Some of them presumably to Mississippi or Alabama or um, Louisiana, as we've described earlier on. Right. Uh, he also goes to Baltimore as a young uh, boy and a teenager where he'll remain enslaved, but he'll do very different work than what he did out in Talbot County. He'll work on uh, building ships in Baltimore's uh, dockyards and his wages will go to the man that owns him. He'll do the work, but the wages will go to his um, enslaver. So urban slavery is very different from agricultural slavery. When Douglas gets free, um, it's by disguising himself as a free black sailor and getting on a train with a fake ID and a ticket that his girlfriend uh, bought him and going to New York and hoping that no one will chase him down from Maryland and come after him. And as a free man, Douglas is well aware that plenty of free black people like him are being kidnapped into slavery from New York, from Boston, from Baltimore, from wherever free black people gather. Yeah, so, so I guess in his life alone, we've seen where members of his family were probably part of the second Middle Passage and sent to the That's South. Right. And he himself was uh, afraid of being a part of the reverse underground railroad and captured after this is after he became free a free man he had to be afraid of being captured and sent back south that's right yeah i mean every fugitive from slavery who remained in the united states whether they went to um philadelphia or vermont they were always looking over their shoulder uh, Wayne, in case their former enslaver or a you know a bounty hunter or slave catcher uh, would come and try to grab them and return them, um, so that's not kidnapping exactly because in the eyes of the U.S. Constitution, um, those fugitives were always still slaves. Um, but it's a reminder that black freedom was incredibly fragile um, in the in the northern um, states. Whether you were born into freedom. Um, uh, like Frederick Douglass's fiance, uh, Anna Murray, uh, or whether you achieve freedom by running away and claiming it as Frederick Douglass would himself, you can still be grabbed either by a slave catcher or just by a kidnapper who does not care who you use, what, what your papers say. Yeah, so you always live pretty much with some sense of fear, but uh, bringing that to today, do you have any thoughts on how this history affects us now? And I'll give you one quick example just for you to jump off on that people often say that the modern police, whether they're Black policemen or white policemen or even Spanish policemen, have a history of coming from this legacy of capturing Black men. And that's one reason why, uh, you know, nothing has really changed. Do you have any thoughts on just how this can, how today's issues connect with those issues of the past? Yeah, it's an interesting thesis, isn't it, right? I've certainly read some of those ideas and pieces of scholarship making the case that the origins of the modern police are, are, are as slave catchers. And some of that evidence is persuasive, and some of it leaves questions that aren't being well answered by the people making that case. Because, of course, 
you know, police forces, um, uh, which develop in the 1830s, by the way, in their modern forms are quite late. Um, they're actually often based on uh, European uh, examples. The British uh, actually developed the first modern police force uh, before any American city does. And many American cities modeled their police forces on these British examples. So uh, because slavery, um, uh, slavery's imprint on Britain is very different, that argument doesn't work to explain the development of police in Britain, and it doesn't uh, fully satisfy us uh, when we remember that police forces in America were often modeling British, um, British examples. So I think there's some truth in that thesis that we just heard, but it's not the only explanation for the development of modern uh, policing. But what we can certainly say uh, is that modern um, uh, policing has uh, had a racialized character um, because modern police forces uh, do the work of the elected officials um, who empower them and fund them. And the political priorities of those elected officials, whether it's at the city or the state or the national uh, level have historically not done a good job of representing the um, the interests of black citizens of the United States who historically were excluded from voting for a great deal of um, American history and who are still active whose votes are still actively suppressed in many parts of this uh, country. So, as a general statement, you could say that uh, you know uh, the modern police have more often than not been a tool of white supremacy. Uh, though, of course, you know, once you bore down past that headline, it depends on where we're talking about and when we're talking about. Okay, so yeah, so it's pretty much you're saying a broad statement with not all time with enough substance to fulfill itself. I think that's right. I think that's right. Of course, certainly, we're all well aware from watching you know, endless uh, examples of police violence and police shootings, which always tend to be directed towards people of color, we could still reach the conclusion that um, uh, the black, uh, black freedom and the black pursuit of happiness in this country is still very, very fragile, uh, right? And that I'm a white person speaking to you now, I do not face the same mortal dangers when I go out on the street every day from the police um, that people of color. Uh, do. That's a sad fact, a sad truth about modern America. And on that tip too, I think sometimes that maybe it is some truth to the to the fact that, that the fear is generational and that probably you didn't grow up knowing that you had to be careful as I would have had. So, you know, one story I always think about when I don't try to rely on that 100%, but, you know, to me that have some, it's not completely whole itself but I do recall when we speak of those issues of how uh, I never, I grew up at a time past Emmett Till, but I knew the Emmett Till story very well. And I knew that that was something that I had to be con cautious of, conscious of. And I guess you wouldn't have to have to be conscious of those type of things. That's absolutely true, right? It's not, it did not feel like a clear and present danger to my life or my family's life at any point. I also grew up in Britain, of course, as folks will probably be able to tell from my strange British British accent. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, but the idea that there is a constituency of American citizens who have to teach their children to be wary of police uh, or risk a mortal threat to their children's lives—that is a sad state of affairs, and it's continuing.
Yeah, and I'm thinking that reading your book, I will probably feel that uh, it probably is generational, that one generation after another passed down these thoughts, whether or not they're specific thoughts, but the general thought that your life is fragile because you're Black, and therefore you have to do X, Y, Z. Would 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 you think that'd be accurate? I do think that's accurate. Sorry, yes, I was. Uh, you can't for audio listeners can't tell, but I was nodding along with what Wayne was saying uh, there. I think <laughs> well, that's I think the way that's I felt when I, when you kept telling these stories at the at at the commemoration. You were telling these stories. I was like, oh my god, I can relate to that, even though I don't feel as threatened as they would have had. And I was thinking that the people in your book must felt very threatened. And then I think about yes, the stories. Right. Of, I think about the stories yeah. of Richard Pierpoint. I think of the stories of uh, Frederick Douglass. And I was thinking, wow! Every day they woke up in the morning, they must felt threatened. Yeah, this book, my book, stolen, is set in 1825, which is roughly 200 years ago. And we'd like to think that we've made so much progress since then. And in many ways, of course, we have. Uh, but in other ways, of course. Uh, the effects of pervasive white supremacist attitudes, um, the daily uh, um, uh, fears and threats that come with walking around in a black body in America, I think continue uh, to this day. They may express themselves in slightly different ways uh, today in the age of uh, you know, assault weapons and, uh, and constant uh, uh, video cameras, but uh, the, the threats to uh, to black happiness, to black joy, I think, and the black family still remain uh, remarkably potent. Okay, well, we're going to end it there unless you have one more statement you want to add. But in general, I just want to say that uh, your talk was wonderful then and it's wonderful today. Thanks so much for having me, Wayne. I really appreciate this opportunity. Okay, take care now.